Mark Saba is a writer, a poet, and an artist. He really bases everything on poetry. It's really his foundation. I start off the conversation by asking him if it's a good time to be an artist, you know, with the internet, with with civil unrest, etc. Uh, has a very interesting response. We have a great discussion on his process. He's been doing it for more than 30 years. Uh, he was uh, born out of Pittsburgh and it was happening there. And then he moved to Connecticut where he's been for about 25 years, I believe. A very interesting discussion on the process of you know, what to do with a blank page. He also uh, has a, such a profound couple of sentences in one of his websites that I had to read it out loud and I had to get his response on it where he talks about, well, I don't want to give it away, but it's really one of the most profound things I've ever read before. Uh, and uh, I applauded him for it and we have a discussion about it. But um, Mark Saba, I think you're going to like this. Thanks for listening. Hi, I'm Joey Pins. People ask me, how did I lose 130 pounds? The quick answer is always discipline. I started my business, wasn't paying attention to my health, was eating too much, you know, drinking too much sweets. My daughter was born. Next thing I know, I'm pre-diabetic, I have hypertension. I knew something had to change. Discipline. I, like many of you, have faced many challenges in your career, in your family, in your life faith. How did you attack them? How did you approach them? How did you solve them, hopefully? It all had to have some degree of discipline. I'm also asked, how did you found and start a tech business that lasted over 25 years? Discipline. I was committed to it, enjoyed technology, didn't enjoy some aspects of it, but knew it was necessary. Discipline. Our podcast mission, how do we use discipline to better ourselves and society. Join me, please, as I talk to interesting people and discuss how they use discipline in their family and their passion and their careers and how it helped them. Our podcast vision, growth through learning from others. Joey Pins Discipline Conversations. It'll be light and serious. Join us, please. Thank you for consideration. And my wife said, just go buy a new computer. So... <laughs> Wow. At well, the thank very... you. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess, uh, yeah, I guess uh, that'll help in, in the long run for other things, I assume. If it's 10 years old, I mean, that's, yeah, that's I, I, I tend to like to hang on to things, so, mm. uh, you know. Very interesting. Anyway. Well, it's great to meet you. We have a mutual friend, uh, Tom Izzo, great guy, great uh, artist himself, great musician. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I met I met Tom. Uh, I don't know, maybe fifteen years ago. Um, we were actually performing together. There was this thing called New Haven Works, and my neighbor is also a musician, and he asked me to read a few poems at this. There was a you know, it was kind of like to do a little music, then I'd read a poem, and then to do some more music. And anyway, Tom was involved in that also, so that's how we met. Uh, Very interesting. Yeah. Uh, you do so many things, Mark. I mean, uh, I consider you—I consider you an artist. I mean, is it a good time to be an artist now? Oh wow, interesting question. Well, you know, I think there are more opportunities now than there have been before. I mean, you can get your work out there in so many ways and communicate mm. with people. In different ways but 
you know, there's such a disparity between people who actually make money from doing any kind of art and people who are just doing it because there's something, it's something inside them they need to do, you know? So, and I don't know, I don't know if it's necessarily a bad thing, you know? I, I, I think the more art, the better. I don't, I don't think we need to all aspire to be, you know, making millions of dollars from it. We need to aspire to be communicating with other people. I mean, the reason that we paint or draw or write is, you know, because we reach other people who've got similar feelings and it, it gives them validity in some way. And, and it's a good thing. So hmm. I don't know. Overall. It's, it's difficult. Overall, I think it's a good thing, although it's never been easy. It's, so that hasn't changed. I don't, you know, there's always, there's always a reason not to make art, you know, go out, make some money, uh, do all those mundane things you have to do every day, wash the car, whatever. Um, so you, you, you have to make time for it. And I think you find that it's, it's worth it. That's so. very interesting. I, I just recently went to the Van Gogh exhibit, you know, the immersive one where you're, you're, you're it's all around you. And, uh, you know, I mean, his, you know, his life, I mean, he dealt with mental illness. He dealt with many things there in Europe and, uh, you know, the, the, the evolution of his art was just dramatic, but I mean, you know, what would Van Vincent Van Gogh have done if there was the internet? Would would he be able to get his work out? Would he have I don't know, would he have moved his ear? Would he have been that way? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, he might have been able to reach out and reach out to other people, mm. you know. You know, I mean we're able to reach out to virtual strangers and sometimes, you know, find some solace there. Um Yeah, in those days I think you were probably even more boxed in with your art you know you retreat to your room and people think you're crazy and weird and if there's not another artist in town then you're really crazy and weird (laughs) so uh i don't know i mean i'm sure that would contribute more to mental illness no i mean there's there's plenty of mental illness around today but there are like i said there are those avenues to get help or just to just to find a community you know Interesting. I, I, yeah, I, I often wonder. On the other hand, because he didn't have as many distractions <laughs> as we do. Right. I mean, a lot of those old artists. I mean, God, what they did was miraculous. I mean, look at look at Michelangelo. Even. I mean, it's it's mind-boggling what they did. How he carved those things out of marble. I mean, he was able to concentrate on that all the time, every mm. day. He had he didn't have to you know check his email or. Um, you know, update his Facebook page and um, I don't know, or, or feel like he had to go travel somewhere. He probably couldn't even afford it. So that's interesting. You know, what, what human minds can do when they really apply themselves and they have the time, either they make the time or they have the time. It's, it's usually beyond what anyone can imagine, you know, and, you know, part of being an artist is is making the time. I think I know I've said that before, mm. but as I said, there's always something to keep you from doing it. You know, very interesting. And mm. with the current, you know, political climate and civil unrest, and you know, we're hopefully coming out of this pandemic. Are artists needed more now than ever? I I think I think the public at large will probably look to artists a little bit more now because they've had to reflect mm. on, you know, life. <laughs> I mean, what, what's important. Um, 
you know, we've had things taken away from us so quickly and so easily that we took for granted, like just being able to see your relatives or hug your kids or, you know, go visit grandma. I mean, who would have thought we couldn't, we could not do that. Um, and maybe you didn't make enough time to do it before, but now you're realizing that you should have. So this, you know, that obviously leads to a lot of introspection and that's, that's what artists do. They sit and they look inside and they find things there. So, you know, I think you might have a point there. I think maybe people are more receptive to art because of the pandemic, you know? You know, I kind of see an emergence of of more music. And, you know, I remember, I don't want to liken this to Vietnam. I kind of go back to, I was born in the late 60s. And so early 70s, you know, when Vietnam ended, we had this kind of rush. And, you know, just in New York City, you had punk, you had disco, you had uh, hip hop, rap emerge all within, you know, that city right after that kind of war, after that very downtime, mm. plenty of civil unrest and plenty of protests. And, you know, the artists fought back. They had something to, to, to protest about, to write about, mm-hmm. to sing about, to draw about, to paint about. Yeah. I, well, I guess we're going to, we're going to see it happening. It's, <laughs> it's maybe too early to tell, but I have to say that I never considered myself a political poet. But particularly, you know, towards the end of the Trump administration, I find myself, I find myself finding it necessary that I had mm. to write, that I had to address some of these issues. I just, I, I just saw the country going down the tubes real fast, and I thought I, I can't just be quiet about this. So, um, I actually posted a video on I can't remember the name of the organization, Writers Against Trump, I think it's called, uh, with some you know, more famous poets who who organized. And we all posted our little videos asking hmm. people to vote, you know, right before the election. And I was kind of surprised about how impassioned I was about it because I, I often felt like I, I couldn't make a difference really that way with my art or my poetry. But I think we can. I think people, I think people have ears, they're listening, they're, they're looking for something, something to believe in, you know, um, take a moral stance, you know, even with things like Black Lives Matter, you know, you mm-hmm. need to, it's like, we're, we're at a moment, we're at a crossroads in history. You know, I, I think you're right. It's, it's sort of like it was at the end of the 60s. It's probably even greater. You know, we've never experienced a pandemic like this that we can remember. I mean, our my grandparents lived through the 1918 pandemic. Hmm. But, you know, that was so far out of memory for us that right. we didn't we didn't think it could happen again, but here it did. And then, certainly did. And then you have all this polarization of people and this craziness that people think they have to be the, either this or that and, mm. and the media feeding some of that. And, uh, you know, I, I know, and I think, I think most artists know that we're all kind of in the gray middle and we want to connect that way and we can talk about stuff. And, and that's just, that's just a natural thing. It doesn't have to, it doesn't have to kill us all, <laughs> you know? Absolutely. Yeah, I, I agree. You know, uh, I, I I took a line. I take a line from Joe Rogan. I'm, I'm politically homeless. You know, I mean, I I I reserve the right to change my mind at any time based on new evidence, based on new facts. You know, that's mm-hmm. presented to me in a different fashion. Uh, so it's a very it's a very interesting time in our lives. And uh, yeah. so so you're a writer, a poet, you're an artist, you're a filmmaker. I, 
I want to talk about each of those in a moment, but mm-hmm. how do you approach, do you approach each of those the same way? I mean, what, what do you do with the blank page? Well, it's interesting. I, I came to realize over the years that everything I do is a poem. Hmm. My paintings are poems. My novels are poems. Um, the, the films I've made are, are poetry videos and they're obviously another kind of poem, but yeah, I, I kind of, I kind of look for the essence of what are, whatever I'm creating. Um, this is why this is why I think it all boils down to poetry, because poetry, uh, the German word for poem is gedicht, means condensed. Hmm. So I take all that crazy information in my head, and I want to condense it in a way to make it clear, not only for myself but for my readers or viewers, and and that's what poetry does. So when I'm writing a, a longer piece of fiction piece of fiction i i don't want to use you know too many words <laughs> i try to i'm very concise in my writing and in my painting i don't want to paint something that i don't think uncovers the essence of that subject so hmm. you know sometimes people say oh your paintings look so different you know you wouldn't even know they're from the same artist and i say well it depends on what i'm painting um you know, if I find a certain style and I call it my style, but my subject doesn't agree with that style, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna use that style. I'm gonna I'm gonna let the paint the subject matter dictate it to me. It's the same thing I do with a poem, with my writing. I hope that answers your question. That's a little, <laughs> that's a little No, I love it. It's so your foundation is a is a poem. I didn't know it meant condensed. I, I immediately thought of the Mark Twain quote where he's writing his sister a letter and the first line is, you know, I'm sorry this is so long. I didn't have enough time to shorten it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so there you go. <laughs> See I think a lot of writers, well, writers constantly edit and rewrite, and that's the reason because to, to us, every single word is important. <laughs> mm. You know, you reread those words and you think, are they, are they necessary for this? If they're not necessary, get rid of them. Are, are they distracting from what I'm trying to say? Are they more about my ego than the story? Like about how, you know, clever I am as a writer? Then no, you don't need that. But if it's integral to the story, then you need it. Um, and you do see poems. That, sometimes I see poems that are very long and rambling, and I think mm. I... I, I don't know. I'm not really into that kind of poetry. I, I think that could be condensed to about one third the size hmm. and say more <laughs> than, than it does when it just keeps going on and on, you know, um, yes, say more with less. Now your, your recent, you have a couple of two novellas, uh, fire hmm. and ice and they, they seem a bit, uh, forgive me, but they seem, I have it here. <laughs> very good. Yeah. Let's talk. So a young Catholic boy out of, out of Pittsburgh. I mean, is that, autobiographical uh yes um a look of all ages that's the first novella um i started writing that when my my aunt died my mother's sister and it kind of struck me that my childhood was evaporating before my eyes i you know we had spent Hmm. a lot of time at her house growing up and i just started thinking about where i came from i've been living in connecticut for 34 years and i grew up in pittsburgh and I think Mark Twain probably had a similar sentiment when he was living in Hartford, thinking mm. about growing up in Missouri. And when he yeah. and that's that's how we wrote Huckleberry Finn. That's right. Um, and maybe Marcel Proust had the same hmm. same experience. So I just started laying out, 
you know, saints from my childhood. And then I thought of what it meant to become older, to become middle-aged and all these phases you go through, you go through in life. And, and that's kind of what the book's about. And I wrote it not thinking it would ever be published really. It was sort of more a therapy session for me. And I kind of just put it away and then I sent it to this publisher and, and he really liked it. And then there's another novella called Fire and Ice. So the two of them are in the same book. And um, that's not as autobiographical. It's more it's just about all made up. But the one character did grow up, you know, very Catholic and a traditional Catholic family and went to a Catholic school. And he meets this woman who grew up in basically in the woods with her mother who was homeschooled without any organized religion at mm. all. And the two of them meet and they start they start seeing each other's point of view and these two different worldviews they have. And the woman actually becomes interested in Catholicism and converts. Hmm. As the guy as the guy is saying, you know, I haven't been to church for years, you know, I don't really go into that anymore. And and I, I was just thinking there's value in both systems. There was value in the way that guy was raised. There were things he saw that she didn't see. And the same with her. And, you know, the way she interacted with the natural world was was much more important than he had ever considered. So I you know, that that's just my that's my thing about meeting in the gray middle. I think we all have something to give and we can all learn from each other. And there's no, we can't, you can't take the uh, point of view that your way is always right. And that's kind of how we get into this mess that we're in. Um, so there's a little bit of similarity in those two books, but as I say, the first one is much more autobiographical. And um, I find when I do write that way that people respond to it very well. Hmm. I think the more you dig into yourself, and into your particular situation, the more universal it becomes. And I think people are attracted to those kind of stories because, you know, even if someone grew up in an entirely different part of the country, with different socioeconomic background, you know, little details emerge when they and they can relate to them. And you know, we all have parents. We all we're all kids at one point. So. Absolutely. That's what those two books are about. <laughs> but yeah, it's interesting that you. At one point, you said how people you know, they kind of dig in, you know, I am right and that's it. And I'm in this box and these people are with me and you're not. And it, that's not how, uh, you know, that's not how we're going to advance. And uh, yeah. it's also interesting you say about perspective when these two completely opposites meet. When, when I was a young child, my father was an Italian immigrant. He would send me to Italy by myself. And so at 10 years old, I, I you know, I meet my family over there and, you know, Southern Italy has a very different way of, of living than oh, you know, yeah. New Haven, Connecticut, you know, and uh, uh, not that one's better than the other. It's just different. And um, you get acclimated to you know, to taking naps in the afternoon and to eating, but, you know, you, but you walk a lot. So not people aren't overweight and, uh, you know, and men hold hand, you know, arm in arm and, you know, I know, I'll tell you what, when I, when I graduated from college, I spent a summer in Abruzzo where my grandmother came from. Yeah. And everything you just said, I experienced, I'm walking down, I'm walking down the street with this young guy I just made friends with. He puts his arm through mine and I'm like, I I don't know what this is about, but everybody's do doing it, you know. So I just kind of went with it, uh, you know. But I was no one spoke English in that town where I stayed, and I don't know if you had known if you knew Italian when you were ten years old. Only then. a little. <clears throat> yeah, I had studied it and I picked up a few things from my grandmother, but I remember thinking to myself, I spent the whole summer there, this little town in the mountains, 
And I remember thinking, this is not easy. Don't ever romanticize this time. I mean, it's quaint, it's beautiful. There's little sheep coming through the streets at night and everything. But um, I felt like I knew what it was like to be an immigrant, to be someone in a different country, in a different culture. Even though my grandmother was Italian, you know, she had left there 50 years ago and she was, you know, an American Italian now. Um, sure. But I, I just, there's so many little things that, that are different. I really have a lot of empathy for anyone who comes to this country from somewhere else now. I mean, just, just having gone through that situation myself, uh, I'm really glad I did it. It was, it was hard, but I'm, I'm glad I did it. It was all my idea too. Mm. I, I wanted to go there. So, yeah. So we both, we both have something in common there. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. You know, two things. One, the language. I mean, my father also lived in, in the mountains. And e even even if I studied Italian, it really wouldn't help me that much. I mean, the dialect is so thick and it's so yeah, different. Yeah, dialect. You know, yeah, but the, I think that when I was talking with people, they would they would kind of use standard Italian. Right. They knew it. I, I started to pick up the dialect, though. And course, as I yeah. did, they, they were very amused that I was doing that. I think. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah, the Italians generally, you don't need to try. I mean, you know, the Parisians kind of have a different kind of reputation of where you got to try a little bit, you know, yeah. the Italians, well, just kind of, it's all right. You know, you know, they, oh, yeah. they know a lot of them used to work at hotels. So, you know, uh, would you like to use the water closet? You know, they know, uh, you know, they know some American, uh, American English <laughs> phrases. Yeah. Uh, and you're right. Also, you can't really romanticize it because, you know, every young man and young woman wanted to get out of there you know can mm -hmm. you bring me back to america you know they they it's it's nice everybody's friendly but there's not a lot of growth there's not a lot of future in these small towns there's not jobs you know right. so it was um very different way of living and you just learn a lot <clears throat> excuse me like you mentioned in your book when you have these two different cultures meet and not that one way is better than the other you just learn how others live and you you adapt that into your own life yeah yeah, I, it's it's very interesting. I mean, I, I absolutely loved my grandmother. That's part of the reason I wanted to go visit her hometown. But I'm not sure she really understood why I wanted to go there. Mm. You know, she's, you know, she would stay, say stuff like, you know, I came over here because they have a washing machine. Over there, we were washing clothes on a rock in the river, you know. And, you know, by the time I was there, which was 1981, they weren't washing clothes in the river anymore. <clears throat> you know, I mean you know, things had changed. And then I went back again with my family in 2005 and I was really surprised how much it had changed even more. Mm. You know, it had become more of a tourist destination than, than anything. And, you know, with an Irish pub and all kinds of weird stuff, <laughs> which I was kind of disappointed about, but, right. you know, but, you know, things change and, uh, I don't know. It was, it was such a learning experience for me. I'm not, I'm not sorry I did it. Um, and I, I would always try to see things from my grandmother's point of view, you know, when she came over here. And I actually I actually wrote another novel. Um, it hasn't been published in print, but it's called The Shoemaker. And it's about her family. Her father was a shoemaker when they came over here. And, you know, I, I wrote it after I had spent my time in Italy. So I, I wrote it from their point of view of mm. being immigrants coming to this country when they came in 1920. So you know, I had empathy for that, that generation. That was, that was a big deal for them. You know, can you imagine like going to another country, you never see your grandparents again because they couldn't afford to go back and forth. No way. And you never see the graves of your ancestors. 
you know, everything's different. The climate's different. I mean, can you imagine going to Pittsburgh at the time? It was all smoky and right. The weather was <clears> gross, <throat> and, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Yeah. Three rivers. Yeah. My father got his first pair of shoes when he was, you know, 12. You know, mm. so it's hard. It's hard to, you know, relate to that, you know, as yeah. an American, you know, and, uh, you know, there's still, you know, he, he talks about when the, when the Nazis came back in World War Two, when they were retreating after Mussolini, you know, turned back, you know, his uncle uh, got him and took him up to the wood, uh, took him up to the mountains because we got to get mm-hmm. out of here because they're coming yeah. through again, you know. I, I have no relation to that. I can't understand that. You know, my peers certainly can't. It's very different. So I want to talk about, so you left a country like that and kind of the inspiration of you making something like the shoemaker. So mm-hmm. you kind of like, at what point do you decide to turn this experience into words? I actually thought about, I had an experience in the, when I was in my twenties, I lived in California for a couple of years. To me, California is a different country. Yeah, <laughs> I, don't know if, I, I don't know if you've ever lived there, but yeah. I mean, when you first land, it's like, oh, how pretty. Everything's nice. Sure. Everybody hugs each other all the time. Food's good. But it's like you slowly realize that you're an Easterner, you know, yeah. and you're always <clears> going to be an Easterner. So that's kind of what got me thinking about my grandparents coming over here, plus the time that I had spent in Italy, the idea of moving to a different part of the world and thrown into this like cultural milieu which is totally different than what you're used to and also about changing gender roles so i thought of you know my wife and i my wife worked very hard she's she's still working and how our situation was different from our grandparents and how when they came over here even my grandmother got a job as a seamstress you know i don't think she had ever worked back in italy like that Hmm. so i mean that was kind of like a big deal i mean and you know, they came over in 1920. That's when all the styles started changing. You know, they, they didn't have to wear those long dresses anymore. And like roaring 20s. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I started seeing some similarities in my life and just dealing with how to, how to deal with these changing gender roles and also their lives when they came over here. So the book actually goes back and forth between my situation and theirs. Hmm. So it, some of it takes place in California and all the things that this guy's experiencing in the novel and then because then some is in pittsburgh and how the uh, this italian family is experiencing for instance getting their first car you know and, and not knowing what to do with it <laughs> you know um and then the the great grandfather the shoemaker how he's he's so uncertain all the time about his family about how they're gonna how they're gonna survive how they're gonna live you know He's got this daughter who's my grandmother who's like very rebellious, <laughs> you know, and like doesn't want to get married right away. And um, yeah, so that's what I, you know, that's what I do. I find these, I find these areas that are like have some tension and that's what I write about. So but the how shoemaker, do you know? Sorry. The Shoemaker is actually, I, I made it available as an ebook on Smashwords if anybody's interested. Um, but it's not published in print, but you can get it as an ebook. At what point do you realize that you're going to turn what you see and experience into a book that, that kind of point of others will like this? Yeah, that's, I don't know. I mean, I'm not sure others will like anything (laughs) really, but 
I, you know, anything I write, I look at at any point in my life, what's what's keeping me up at night? What's what am I obsessing about? What am I what what can't I stop thinking about? And why is it? Why am I thinking about it constantly? Because there's something I need to discover there. There's some tension there. There's something that needs to be explored. And I just I just have faith that other people will have the same, you know, the same issues, the same things they're thinking about and might want to explore. So then I write about it. And then when it's done, I'm like, I move on to something totally different. Um, that's fascinating. Yeah, so that's what I've been doing, like, for the past almost 40 years now. It's fascinating to me because even when I had the idea to kind of start this podcast, <clears throat> excuse me, my throat, and... I said, I love talking to people. I love talking to artists like yourself. And I have, I just have questions about the process and how they work. Will others be interested in hearing this is, is what ultimately I fought with. Um, yeah, but I think if you're honest about it, I, that's, that's what I think it boils down to is integrity. I think, you know, as I said, if I, if I, come up with a story if like if it's completely contrived like like okay this story is going to sell i'm going to write about this and that mm. it might it might sell for a while but is it going to be around 100 years from now are people going to care about it that's that's the view i take i'm not i'm not really interested in what you know the vagaries of the marketplace are at this current moment or the you know, what publishers happen to like and it's like, i i i think you know people that enjoy my books and they the reason they enjoy them is that they find something that they can relate to, you know, and something, something real in them. And that's, that's, that's what drives me really. Um, I mean, I haven't made a million dollars off my, off my work, you know, but every now and then I get a nice little note from someone saying, you know, I really enjoyed your book and that, that keeps me going. Mm. I'm sure I've made a connection there. I kind of distrust the marketplace. I, I, I distrust putting a, a price tag on anything like that, on any creative work. There are just too many other forces involved that, that influence that and to me it's not you know i i spend i i you know, pour my heart and soul into these things because i think they're they're honest and i want them to be i want them to go out in the world in the same way so um and to go back to your very first question about is it easier for artists these days it actually i think there's so many different ways to be published you can you can publish things yourself you mm. can published with small there's a lot more small presses all my books have come out from small presses um you know you can help with the marketing yourself i mean even with things like facebook you just tell your friends and you know when i started out if you wanted to have a poem in a literary magazine you had to like find a literary magazine in a bookstore read it see kind of what they like then you had to send them the poems to the u.s mail with a self hmm. self-addressed return envelope with a stamp on it and then you might get a response in a year saying you know sorry we can't publish this you know so that's the way it was now you can go online there's a there's this site called submittable where you can submit your poems uh like hundreds and thousands of of venues there you know magazines that use submittable and you just click a button and then if they don't like it you know so what just send it somewhere else it takes another minute <laughs> you know mm. it's kind of like it's kind of like what we always dreamed about you know in the early days it's like there should be a way to connect writers and readers you know it's like we're kind of like almost there we're getting there you know 
the, the problem is though there's just so much of it now because right. because it's easier so many, it's just being flooded and people can't really find what they want uh, that's a problem i still uh, i'm trying to solve like how to actually mm. reach people i mean the best way's always been word of mouth but um you try and you know you hope that there's other ways to make it easier too yeah, I want to talk about yeah. publishing in a moment, but I getting back to like your process. You wrote something mm -hmm. here, and I I hate to read, uh, but I I just I just I need I need for you to comment on this because I just loved it. I reread it so many times. Uh, mm -hmm. I let the vision. You're talking about your your instance of writing and, and your poems, your essays. I let mm. the vision find the right format as I try to free myself from the influences of my beloved teachers and literary forebears. Never mm. an easy thing to do. It is the only way to realize originality in my work. I think it is the duty of any living writer to write from the heart, thereby acting as a medium for the zeitgeist, a witness a witness who produces what can only be produced by his or her individual circumstances in his or her time, free of self-consciousness and its attending egotism. Mark, wow, that's, that's a lot. Wonderfully profound. Yeah, I, I, you just reminded me of that. I forgot that I wrote that. <laughs> okay. Um, I, I kind of was um, hinting at this earlier. We were talking about how all my different art forms are related i you know and even when i started writing i just i just had this thing in my head i don't want to sound like anyone else i don't hmm. and there were some writers that i really really admired and i was always fearful i don't want to sound like hemingway i don't want to sound like mark twain you know you know um john steinbeck i love those people hmm. but i thought how can i how can i not sound like them and the only thing i kept coming back to was Write about your own experience, Mark. Write about how thing, how you see things, not how someone else sees things. Because that's what they did. That's all they did. And uh, one of my favorite writers, Gertrude Stein, who was a big influence on me when I was younger, said, it doesn't matter what you write about. It matters how strong your voice is. Hmm. And, you know, you could take some of the, the most famous stories in the world and books and you boil it down to a sentence or two and you're like okay <laughs> you know odysseus some guy goes out and meets some kind of weird creatures and kills them and it doesn't sound like very much and then you read it and it's all about how the story is told because of the strength of the voice and the reason the voice is strong is because that writer that person chose chose an individual way of presenting the story based on what that individual saw uh, and felt. And I think if we all do that, it's easier to connect in a universal way. It's kind of paradoxical, you know? You can't, you know, you can't use a program on the computer that teaches you how to write or we all write exactly the same way. Um, hmm. Because our you know, there are no two people in this world who are equal in that they've all experienced different things in their lives. It's just, that's what life is. You know, we're, we're born in individual circumstances. Everything we see, hear, smell, touch, taste is different for every single person. And all those little impressions are always in your head and tucked away. And those, those are the impressions that I use when I write. Um, I hope that answers your question. Uh, yeah, well, I just... 
it's fun. the thing about egotism egotism i you mm. know that's a, a dangerous thing like oh this writing will sound better if i if i really flower it up here you know if i sound more like uh margaret atwood or something like that and mm. but then you but then you have to say is that you or is that not margaret atwood who's writing this <laughs> you know i mean who who do you want to sound like and that that's what i mean about staying away from egotism staying away from what you think is going to make this a good good writing good story don't think about that think about how you're writing it and how true are you to your own voice that's all that matters and then people will respond to it i think acting um, as a medium for the zeitgeist the zeitgeist meaning the time you're living in um, right. all the other writers that i mentioned or any writer that you had has written it's obviously he's written in another time especially if it's you know really another time like 50 years ago whatever um, and all those things that are going on in the world influence that writer whether whether they know it or not you know i'm being influenced by all this COVID stuff <laughs> i'm being influenced by by all the movements that are going on by you know the polarity in our country those are affecting me whether i know it or not and it, right. and i it's it's going to come out in our writing you know how do you view the reader as you write? Are you constantly thinking, how will the reader interpret this? How will they view it? Where are they in this journey? Um, the only thing that I'm concerned with is trying not to confuse the reader. Mm. I'm, trying, I'm trying to put it down as clear as possible. I can't. I've given up on trying to control people. Um, <laughs> you know. I've raised two kids. That probably has something to do with it. But and now I have a dog, which is even worse. <laughs> so, <laughs> but um, yeah, I mean, yeah. Obviously, you don't want to bore the reader either. That's another. Obviously, that's another consideration. But I think if you can be as clear as possible in what you're trying to say, hopefully, it'll be clear enough to the person reading it. You know, if you reread it and you're like, I don't know what I'm saying here, then no one else is going to know what you're saying mm. either, you know, but I, I don't think you can like expect people to be sensitive. Some people just aren't, some people just aren't going to get stuff, you know, no matter how clearly you lay it out. Um, so as I said, it's always encouraging to me when I get a note from someone and they, they, they saw what I what I put down there and, and it was clear enough that they were able to respond to it. So I think I was successful, but I don't think I'm ever going to reach all readers. I don't think any writer's ever going to do that. I mean, I just go on Amazon, look, look up any book and you'll mm. find a bunch of five stars. And there's the guy with the one star, you know, there's always just one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's just it's the way people are, you know? So. How do you feel about uh, listening to books rather than reading? I haven't done that very much because uh, I my I kind of have a little bit of a attention deficit I think, mm -hmm. and I even when I'm reading, I'll something will strike me like I'll start thinking about something else and I'll look up and I'll have to think about that for a minute and then go back to the. But if you're listening to a book and you do that, then you've missed uh, two pages because you were thinking about something else. So I'm not against that. But I just it doesn't really work for me. Uh, whoops, sorry about that. So uh, are any of your books available in audio versions? No, they're not. I mean, 
And if they did, would you mind that? Would uh, no, I, I mean, wouldn't mind because because other people might be fine with it. I'm sure they. Right. I'm sure they are. I, yeah, that, that would be great. I just haven't. I haven't even really looked into that possibility really. But uh, I know, especially because people are busy, they like to listen to books, you know, during their commute or whatever. And um, that's fine. I mean, I don't know. I might try it again. Um, yeah, I know. I do. I do a lot of that. Uh, yeah. I just took a flight and. Uh, <clears throat> You know, I read a nonfiction book and, uh, well, I listened to it. <laughs> you got to change the verb there. Uh, is the publishing industry fair to writers? I, it's probably never been fair to writers, but, mm. um, you know, once a writer makes it big, then they're very fair. because right. They want to exploit it as much as possible. Uh, but they're kind of in a bind today, too, because they're they're in competition with you know, self-publishing, small presses, university presses, um, other media that are gobbling up people's time. People have short attention spans. You know, I mean, they're they're kind of like they don't know how to reach people either. Um, and there's so many more people writing, which I don't think is a bad thing either. Uh, and I, I I just know that compared to times past, they invest less in marketing books now than they used to. And mm expect the author to do a lot of that and so this brings up another issue is the reason writers write is because they tend to be a little shy and they can't tell their stories they have to think about them write them down like Hmm. in a quiet room and i'm always i mean i've done a lot of readings myself uh and i you know i tend to do well with them but i'd rather people read my books you know, in a nice comfy armchair by themselves. I think, I don't know, I think it's a more intimate experience. Um, so the idea of, you know, writers marketing their own works, which is getting to be more and more important, it's hard for writers, I think, to do that. And some writers are more more adept at it than others. Like I said, I can do it, but I, don't, I can't say I really enjoy doing it. Yeah. Well, it's, it's, it's not easy for an artist to, you know, hang themselves out, not only with their art, but you know, here it is in front of me, please mm-hmm. consume it. But let's go back to publishers. I mean, there's more writers than ever, you know, why, why uh, there's the big four, I believe. Is that correct? There's the big four, four. four or five. I, I can't four remember. Five. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I mean, you don't see them. Why aren't they doing better? Why, why aren't they cultivating all these writers better and pushing it out? I mean, what's their excuse? Well, uh, the market, I mean, to print, to do traditional print runs, it's expensive to Mm. to print books that way, you know, say you're going to print 500, send them out to bookstores, then either they sell them or they send them back to you and you've lost a lot of money. So that's, that's the traditional way. And when there were fewer writers, like people, they would look in the New York Times, uh, the book review, and they'd mm. probably recognize some of the writers, you know, because there weren't as many around. Now, now there's hundreds and thousands of them, and they're all over the place. And really, like, I don't know what to read now, you know, and you go to a bookstore and, you know, half of what you pick up doesn't look very interesting. But they're just like fighting for people's attention. Um, so I don't know. And I, you know, I know people who work in publicity in uh, publishing firms and they tell me they it's all very confusing for them right now they're not sure what's going on how this is all going to shake out um but i have faith that 
it's becoming a little more democratic. I, I, I don't think, I mean, the days when writers are going to make tons of money are probably every now and then there's one, but most of us probably aren't going to see that. Um, and I don't know. And I, and I often think about my work and it's okay. Maybe people around Pittsburgh would like my work, <laughs> you know, because, because I write about Pittsburgh a lot. Right. Uh, but on the other hand, then I think about the whole rust belt, you know, people in Detroit might like it as well. And so in Cleveland and maybe even Chicago, I don't know, but it's, it's, I mean, a publisher can't always take that kind of risk. Now I'm writing a new book. Now it's, it's a memoir, which I never thought I would do. Hmm. Okay, here we go about uh, you know COVID affecting us. I I don't know. Everything just everything just seems more urgent now. I mean, I don't know why it seemed urgent that I should write this memoir. And I'm 63 now, so I feel like it's an okay time to write a memoir. And it actually is turning out very well. I'm really surprised, and I'm kind of learning a lot about myself. And I'm wondering if that's something that might have a broader appeal. I might try to send it to some bigger publishers. We'll see what happens with that. But it's the first time I've written something that I really feel like it should have a broad appeal. Mm. Uh, it's basically, you know, coming of age as a poet and kind of the different um, times that I went through of self-awareness and going down that path and how I re kind of resisted it at first and I didn't know about it. And people kept telling me, you're a poet, you're a poet. And I like, I didn't know what that meant. I had no, there were no poets in my family. You mm. know, I'm like, you can't make a living being a poet, <laughs> you know. It's like so. That's kind of that's kind of the approach I'm taking with that memoir. Is there pressure on writers to write something that eventually will make the screen? Well, probably if you want to, um, there's probably more money in that. So hmm. if that's your aim, do you know the Czech writer Milan Kundera? I don't know I've that name. Heard of him. No. So <clears throat> he once said, I think he said this in the 80s, uh, he thought if a novel was to be successful these days, it had to be one that could not be made into a movie. Hmm. <laughs> so, you know, he was taking novels to the next level. It's like, okay, we have movies now. It's like we have photographs. You don't have to paint like a photograph anymore. Hmm. Um, okay, we have movies. You don't have to write like that, any, like, like it's a movie. And I thought that was really interesting because that's kind of, that's the approach I took. I, I don't care. I, you know, if someone can make a movie out of it, okay, but I'm not going to write it in like a strictly chronological fashion and have this like arc of drama go on and all that crap. You know, I'm just, I don't know. I guess I'm not really traditional that way, <laughs> you know? Very, so. Yeah, it's very interesting. You know, I, kind of the theme of the podcast is discipline and how people use it in their, you know, in their vocation and their art. And it seems to me you're very disciplined, especially you talk about this memoir now. It seems like you're always creating. I am. And I, and I, and if I'm not, I get very nervous and, hmm. and I'm not, I'm not really fun to be around. That's my wife, you know? I know that I've taken, there have been times when I've taken maybe a few months off in between projects and I'm just really grumpy. And, you know, and even I, I worked for 33 years at Yale University. I just retired last month as a oh. um, medical illustrator and graphic designer. And people would always say to me, Mark, you're, you're so centered and calm. You know, what do you do? Like, do you meditate? Do you do yoga? I'm like, no, I'm a writer, <laughs> you know, and I make time to do that just about every day. 
and that's how I, that's my drug. You know, I don't need anything else. Hmm. So, um, I don't know. I, I don't know if it would work for everybody, but I think for people who tend to be creative, there's just so much coming in every day to think about so many, there's, there's just too much up in that, in that head and it needs to be released. And, and when you release it in a creative way, it just, it calms you down. So, um, I always need to, even when I'm in the middle of a project, I, I get nervous thinking about what am I going to do next? You know, what am I going to do hmm. next? So, and usually it's something very different from what I just completed. And sometimes I'll do a, a couple things at the same time. They're like night and day. Really? Uh, yeah. And because there's, like I said, there are just so many possibilities that it's, it's, you know, now, now that I'm retired, like officially from my day job, I'm just, I'm even more nervous than ever because I'm like, oh my God, now I actually do have time and I have to fill it up, you know? So now I'm like writing every morning at this memoir instead of trying to pack it in the evenings. You know, when my kids were little, I put them to sleep around eight o'clock and then I would write for two hours. Wow. And I would be really tired, but, um, but I would, I would get cured up from the writing, you know? So yeah, it does take a lot of discipline. Uh, and hopefully if you have a spouse or a partner, they understand that. Uh, I think my wife has, has come to understand that over the years. She, she didn't understand it at first, you know, she mm. thought it was, she thought she was in competition with it or, you know, and I kept saying, no, no, you're not, don't worry. It, but it's hard when you don't have that same passion. It's, it's hard to understand it maybe. So I'm just uh, sending out, sending out a message to all those out there who have partners who are passionate about what they do, just to let it go. <laughs> you know, you're not in competition with it. <laughs> very interesting. Well, you're you're yeah. very unique and you're very you're very disciplined. I I I, I enjoyed talking to you today. Thanks so much for your time. I I yeah. love your process. I love your discipline. I I love your work. I uh, you know, when I read off that one excerpt there i mean i just i i just had to sit back and just kind of ruminate a bit on it and i i wanted to share that with uh, anybody listening and thanks so so tell us mark how can we get in touch with you how can we get some uh, we didn't even talk about your paintings i mean oh. uh, i mean i i've been they're on your website so i've i've been yeah, through there's, them. there's one there's one hanging back here i right see now. that yeah there's one there as well yeah and there's one are, the are most are most writers painters i don't think so no i um I've known a few, uh, but um, I actually was painting before I was writing. I, I've been studying art since I was 10 years old. When you grew up in Pittsburgh, um, they chose two kids from every fourth grade in the city to attend Saturday morning art classes at the Carnegie Museum. Wow. And it was funded by the Carnegie Foundation, so it was free. So we had art classes every Saturday morning, 500 of us in the musical. Wow. And it was a really highly, highly disciplined classical art education. It was a privilege to be there. If you were acting out, you were gone. Hmm. So, and I went, I did that from the time I was 10 years old till 18, till I graduated from high school. Wow. By the time I was 18, you know, by the time you were in high school, the classes were smaller. They had cut it down. So you had to be invited back every year. But it was free every year until I think you're in tenth grade. Then it was a hundred dollars or something for the year. So, it, you know, it was, it was next to nothing really. So I always had that art background. I went to college and I decided to study pharmacy. That's another story. 
I was in the pharmacy school for a couple of years. I enjoyed science, um, but I, eventually I got over that. <laughs> then I, that was at the University of Pittsburgh. Then I transferred up here to Wesleyan University. And that's when I really started writing. I had a teacher there who really encouraged me to be a writer and made me made me see that, I, that that's that's what I was. And um, how did I get on this topic now? Uh, what was I? Uh, I just asked. <laughs> I just asked your background. I mean, uh, oh, my background, painting yeah. versus writing. Yeah. So um, yeah. So uh, people say that my writing is very descriptive and. Um, evocative and i think that's probably because of my visual art training hmm. i tend to i tend to see a lot of things that other people don't see and write them into my into my work here so i think it's helped me really it's it's a good thing uh, but i wouldn't i don't know that many writers that are artists but i've known a few of them uh so then i have to decide what am i gonna do write or paint you know <laughs> do both yeah i know now now i have a little more time right but it, it's always it's always been kind of a, a struggle to to fit them both in. You know, the other thing, like I couldn't find you on social media. You couldn't like, find me. Hmm. I did a search. Uh, like, are you? Do you have? A, do we have an Instagram page? And uh, I do YouTube? Instagram. Oh, well, Instagram. I'm I'm under Sabasardo. <laughs> ah, I see. So okay, uh, and because uh, my grandfather was from Sardinia, so ah, I've never been to Sardinia. Yeah, my name is Sardinian, Saba. Ah, yes. They have they have a completely different language there. Yes, I know they do. And uh white and sand it, beaches. Yeah, and they have beautiful beaches, yeah. But I'll tell you what, when you get away from the coast, it's a very different yes. <laughs> island. island mentality. Yeah. 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 My cousins uh, served military there, you know, all my Italian cousins. They have to mm. you know, they could be in the military and, and a couple of them were, were stationed there in Sardinia and they yeah, they went yeah. on about it. They loved it. But well, very yeah. good. Maybe you could send me those those links. I'll put them in the show notes here. So how can people get in touch with you? How can they get your your work, your poetry, your your music, excuse me, your books huh. and your paintings? Uh uh, you can go to my website, which is marksabawriter.com. And my email address is msaba at snet.net. So that is also on the website under the bio information. So you can get in touch with me there. Uh, the books, I mean, you could look up my name on you know Amazon if you want to give them the money. And, <laughs> and they'll come up. Um, but you can also, I mean, if you contact me directly, I could send you a signed copy. Of it's on the website. The yep. Yeah. I see that. Um, yeah. My Facebook page, I, I don't remember. I mean, I could send you the link, but. Please. I'll yeah. put them in the, in the show notes. Well, right. Mark Saba, thank you so much. Absolute delight talking to you. Uh, I wish you continued success. And uh, maybe the next time we see, we can have another discussion and be face to face. We're in the same, we're in the same state for goodness sakes. Yeah. Right. Right. And, uh, We'll banish COVID and we'll take advantage of that. All right. Very good. All Mark, right. you, thank you so much. I appreciate your time today. Yeah, it's my pleasure. Thanks so much. Okay. Be well. Okay, bye-bye. Thank you for listening and or viewing Joey Pinn's Discipline Conversations. Please share this episode with one or two of your friends who you think may benefit from the episode. Our website, www.joeypins.com. There you find lots of resources and you could join our mailing list. Please follow us on all our social media, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Podcast information, the video version of our podcast is on YouTube. Please subscribe. 
audio is on all major podcasting platforms. Please follow them. And if you like it, please consider giving five-star rating. Would really appreciate that. Would you like to financially support the podcast? You can go to our Patreon site. Consider five, ten, or twenty dollars a month. There's all kind of plans that we have there. It's like a one-time payment. What is this podcast episode worth to you? Twenty-five dollars, fifty dollars, hundred dollars, five hundred dollars, thousand dollars, five thousand dollars. You be the judge. You can go to our PayPal account to do that as well. Thank you again for listening or watching Joey Pin's Disciplined Conversations.